All right, folks, uh, this week we are releasing a Rewind episode. This is Season 1, Episode 23, covering the monkey selfie case and the possible implications it would have for issues like artificial intelligence and works entering the public domain. This episode was originally released on May 14th of 2018, so it is uh, very old at this point, at least in the grand spectrum of uh, this podcast, but... The issues are still relevant, and anecdotally, I was on a meeting with some other lawyers about copyright issues last week, and it was mentioned that the Canadian Copyright Office has issued a registration in which an AI is named as an author. So, remains to be seen how that will work in the United States um, based on this case. Well, you'll, you'll get into it. Uh, if you listen to the episode, me and Kirk talk about uh, what the uh, ruling in the monkey selfie case may mean for the future of AI authors in the U.S. So, without further ado, please enjoy this rewind episode. Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by Cyberdyne Systems. Come see our Series 70 Automated Infantry Unit at the 2018 Robotics Conference and catch a sneak preview of our Advanced Series 600 model. And welcome back to episode 23 of A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy with your host, Ben Siders, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. Today we're going to talk about monkeys. Monkeys. Not us, other monkeys. Other monkeys. <laughs> Simians? <laughs> it's, a, it's a slightly unusual a topic format again. We're going to get into the topic of AI and sort of the softwareization of everything, which has broader reaching implications than perhaps it may seem. Yeah, and I think that's what we're, what we're really getting into in conjunction with this is, in respect to the question of autonomy. Yeah. We love to talk about the idea of autonomy, but... You know, and you hear autonomous vehicles and sort of mm-hmm. phrases like that. But the law actually has very interesting meaning for autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things, and, and a focus of this, and I think we're going to have a little bit of a law school introduction here as we sort of jump right in, yep. um, is what's called mens rea. And this is one of those you know fancy Latin terms that they'll just throw around in law school, but it's when you learn quickly. It just means state of mind. It means state of mind. And what it is is that the law has a very important element to it, which is what is the state of mind of the actor? And this mm-hmm. is something which takes place in a, in a variety of areas uh, sort of across law. And we've touched on it a little bit before. So the example is like you cannot effectively enter into a contract if you are incapacitated, yeah. if you don't understand what a contract is, for example, which is why minors can't sign certain kinds of contracts. Yeah, Incapacitated by matter of law or to yeah, lack capacity. They just simply don't understand uh, what's going on. You also encounter mens rea a lot in conjunction with criminal law. And the different levels of criminal law have different mens rea standards. So the one that always sort of gets thrown out there is murder. Yeah. You know, you how mean were you being when you yeah. killed somebody? It's literally how mean are you being when you killed somebody. So the example is first degree murder is premeditated murder, which means that you fully intended to do what you did. Yeah. Um, you then bump into occasionally. Is it malice second. of forethought? Is that the. Yeah, the malice standard? of forethought's the fancy, the yeah. fancy term. Um, this You bump into then second-degree murder, where second-degree murder is effectively what they call heat of the moment, yeah. which is actually a relatively rare state of mind. Um, it always gets thrown uh, thrown out there as sort of the you, you suddenly encounter something which just you know brings your anger yeah. up against somebody you may never have even met before. It's often a defense that's raised to say you know they're charging murder one, and you say, well, it was heat of the moment, so it really should only be murder two. Yeah. But basically saying, uh, you know, this is me pontificating a little bit, but there are certain st- circumstances under which we say the situation is is so outrageous that people will not be held fully responsible for their actions. Yeah, and again, the, the real key with it is that it's it's that you're not intending to do it. So you you intend to kill the person, but you didn't really intend to do it until immediately the heat of the moment yeah, of doing yeah. it. 
Um, then and you again, get your lesser standards, which yeah. are more like a negligence manslaughter type standard. Yeah, but you get into lower standards, and, and yeah, exactly that re- recklessness, yeah. Um, negligence, and those types of things that come into there. What is commonly classified as manslaughter as opposed to murder. Um, and so you really get into the, the court has this really, really important thing with the idea of what is the actor doing. The reason why we're starting here in conjunction with this is because mens rea is a very human concept. Mm-hmm. The idea of state of mind. We all think, hey, we're in charge of our own actions. That's where it comes from. We are in charge of our own thoughts. We are doing what we intend to do, stuff along those lines. We're now getting into, I think, a little bit of an area of law where suddenly, and we're seeing it in science as well, there's discussion of what if the actor isn't human? Yeah. And now we're getting into the, okay, we have, for example, an autonomous vehicle. We have something which classifies as an AI. This is a question that science fiction has, exo- has you know, examined for years. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of effectively, what does it mean to be human? It's the classic philosophical question, what does it mean to be human? Or even more broadly, what does it mean to have consciousness, which you see yep. explored with, with, you know, with data from Star Trek, which is, is contrasted with Spock, right? Spock's quest is to become a, a, as little human as possible and to become more robotic and machine-like and strictly logical and calculating. Data in Next Generation is, is I think, misperceived as Spock's analog because he's sort of the science guy. Yeah. But he has the opposite quest. He wants to become less machine-like and more human. Yeah, and that's and you've got – science fiction tends to explore it and they explain it for, from the two opposite sides. Where it really gets to – and I think everybody's talked to – you know, people talked about it is the, the question of the singularity. The idea of once you actually create a machine which is more intelligent than a human, mm-hmm. which presumably can also then learn. I mean I think that's a, an important aspect of it is that it can alter its own programming. It can alter its own intelligence intelligence, what does that mean? And that's a question which is explored repeatedly. As I, I sort of joke about it, you have the opposing sides of that. You know, the, the negative AI without any question is Terminator. Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> Skynet becomes self-aware yeah. and ex- tries to exterminate us all. Or the Matrix. I mean, this the same plot's been played out a million times. Yeah, but even the Matrix is sort of the idea that it's not necessarily self-aware. It's just simply it's a functioning machine. Yeah. Um, but you definitely get sort of the, the idea that there's the sort of evil side of it. Then you get a lot of the movies which play off of the no- Actually, this is a very positive thing. Or it's, a, or it's at least neutral. It's something we can still control. Yeah. So you have your your Blade Runners where the replicants are out there, but we, for the most part, have them under control. Well, I think Blade Runner, in many respects, is, is almost the, the sort of antonym of Terminator. Yeah. The, the Terminator that the, the replicants take, you know, the machines take over and terminate humans. Blade Runner, we take the humans yeah. take over and go out and terminate the replicants, but we can't quite exterminate them. You yeah. know, that's the sort of ongoing and or part the of Asimov, the detect them. Uh, novels, the Asimov robot novels. The robots are basically yeah. a, a subservient class to people. But you get into a lot of sort of things like that. You also get into the idea of of sort of robots having somewhat human emotions. I mean, the one that immediately jumps to mind is Bishop from Aliens, yep. and a lot of the play is that he's one of the more human characters, but he's not human. Yeah, there's that great line with like, "Yeah, send Bishop to do it, man." And he's like, "I'm, I'm not dumb. <laughs> yeah. I don't, don't want to die." Said, but I'm not stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's and that's the kind of thing, sort of with it is. I think you we we've explored this in science fiction a lot, and it's an area that I think we wanted to get it to into this podcast. But it's an area which is becoming increasingly of interest to the scientific community and to the legal community as we're talking about things which are programmed, which are autonomous, again, mm-hmm. outside human control, being unleashed upon humanity. This this is where the monkey part comes in. So if you haven't heard. It was a recent ruling by, I think, the Ninth Circus, or if not, this is a missed opportunity by the Ninth Circuit because they love this kind of <laughs> stuff. But um, uh, an Indonesian monkey named Naruto, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, found a camera owned by a photographer named uh, David Slater. 
Uh, Slater had left his camera out in the jungle. Naruto, uh, Naruto, Naruto found found the camera and took some selfies with it. And you've yep. probably seen the monkey selfies online. The images became famous and were later published in a book. Well, of course. PETA sued Slater on behalf of the monkey, saying that the monkey owned the copyright and Slater was infringing his copyright by publishing the photos. And I don't know this, but I'm guessing Slater said, no, if there's any copyright, it's mine. It was my camera. I left it there. Sort of like the the musical compositions where the composer comes out and sits at the piano and doesn't play anything, and the composition is the sounds that are made by the Or even more directly, one of the ones that I know that they have with it, which is the the trained elephants that paint. Yes. Um, And those are generally accepted that actually the trainer owns the copyright. Copyright yep. um, to the extent that the, the elephant is painting because it's the the elephant is trained to do it. Now I think that's a the real key distinction in this case is that in those cases you have a trainer who taught the elephant specifically to how paint to do a specific this. thing. Yeah, to, to paint and to do this behavior. In a case like that, the elephant is almost more of a of a biological computer, more of a tool like using Photoshop to create yep. something. Whereas in this case, obviously this was not something that the monkey was trained to do. It was a wild monkey. Yeah, it was just, just um, happened. That just happened to encounter a camera and act with it. The, the case presents a couple of interesting issues. That, that may have a relationship to how the law treats AI and things that are created or done by AI going forward. Uh, because the threshold question is, can a monkey even file a lawsuit in the first place to enforce a copyright, whether or not the monkey has one? And the second question is, does the monkey have a copyright? Yep. And, and both are really interesting because you know a, a wild monkey has a lot in common with an AI that is created and unleashed. You might think of AI right now as being more akin to like a pet. You know, yep. where it's it's something that a person has direct control and custody over as opposed to a wild animal nobody really owns or controls. And if AI ever got to that point, then these kind of principles would be in play. And what the, what the court said in this case was that the claim for copyright infringement itself is justiciable, meaning the court has the authority to hear the case. What they concluded, though, is that the monkey does not have standing to assert a copyright infringement claim because uh, monkeys can't have copyrights under the Copyright Act. And this has been, as a side note, sort of hailed by animal rights activists as a, as a victory for, for animals uh, in that they can enforce rights in court. But that's actually not a new thing. People have been enforcing – yep. was, there was the, the in-ray crustacean community case a while back where some guy self-appointed himself as the whale's lawyer. And so I mean, these, these cases have gone on. All that's really saying is under the Constitution, there's a jurisdiction here. There's an actual case or controversy. If the monkey does have a copyright, yep. then he has a valid claim. But they said – he doesn't, so he doesn't. Yeah, and I think that's the, the the key thing about this is, and this is one of these things we've we've hinted at it a bit on this show, but we haven't really talked about it particularly is the holding of cases. And when we're talking through a lot of these legal issues, and we're talking through what courts found, and it's one of those things when you get a lot of the outrage on Facebook mm-hmm. or you know outrage in, in case decisions that a lot of people don't really look at what did the court actually hold. They're misunderstanding the procedural posture of the case and why it came out the way that it did. And that's a very important thing. It's one of those things you learn in, you know, first year law school, it's civil procedure. Um, And it's worth just sort of touching on right here, right now, just because what we we really see in this case is the fact that there are two questions here. And Ben touched on them, and I think it's it's important to point out they're two separate questions. The first of these is, does the monkey have the right to go to court for anything? Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is, 
in this case, does the monkey have a claim? Yep. So an example would be is we can look at it and say, do I have the right to walk into a courtroom to, to address a grievance? The answer to that question is unquestionably yes. I can mm-hmm. walk into any court. I can file suit against anybody. That's what the courts grant you. The issue with it is is that what I may file suit on is not something that the court can adjudicate. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't have the authority to do so yeah. or it's just not you know, w- what you're talking about. Like you go to the court and say, I was walking down the street and Ben smiled at me. Make him stop. And the court's like, well, that's – that's not unlawful, so no, yeah. we're not going to do that. Yeah, and that's exactly the thing that you sort of get into. It's you know the, this this idea that says, hey, you you may have a grievance with this, but it's not a grievance yeah. the court can resolve. Yeah, sometimes called advisory opinions too. Like back in the early days, the executive would ask the court, hey, what do you think about this? And they were like, no, we we have authority over cases and controversies, yep. and we don't have any jurisdiction to just tell you what we think the law. And is. that's specifically the phrase, and you hear that used in law schools, what they call case or controversy. Yeah, and that's that in order for a case a lawsuit to proceed. It can be filed, but in order for the lawsuit to proceed, there must be an yeah. actual case or controversy. And that's what the holding was here. They said, well, there is a case or controversy between the monkey and Mr. Slater. And since it's a valid case or controversy, we have the authority to adjudicate it. That doesn't mean the monkey has any rights. In fact, to the opposite, they said he does not have any rights. They also said, PETA, you have no business being involved in this. <laughs> which <laughs> they, is interesting, actually. Well, they filed under something called Next Friend, where, which is where it's – it's a good example is where like you have a, like a, a small child, like an infant maybe, who is injured in a car accident or, or the victim of medical malpractice. The infant obviously can't hire a lawyer and, yep. <laughs> and prosecute a case. So the parents file in their own name as next friend of the infant, meaning we're representing the legal interests of this incapacitated person who can't represent themselves. That's what PETA did here. But what the court said is next friend – you have to have some sort of particular interest in this particular person's case. It can't just be a situation where it's a convenient political axe grinding move where you've got some wider agenda to enforce and this one plaintiff is, is just one piece in your bigger chessboard. And PETA, you have no more relationship to this monkey than any of the other thousands of monkeys that are out there. So yep. you're not really the right people to be a next friend. In some sense, I think it's one where you know, so PETA is, I guess um, – you know, outspoken beliefs is what they do, probably cut against them because they obviously say they represent all animals. And so the issue you bump into in conjunction with this is to be a next friend, you have to have a particular interest in this one. You wonder if like the Jane Goodall, and well, that's apes, not monkeys, but the same idea. If you had somebody who was more particularly interested in the welfare of Indonesian uh, monkeys, maybe it would have been, well, okay, well, you're, you know, more more closer to the facts here. Jane Goodall filing on, uh, on particularly on one of the gorillas that she had a relationship with, that may be a little more accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this matters because what's next? Do we have, um, you know, uh, somebody filing as next friend of Cortana or Siri, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so um, you can vindicate some sort of rights there based on, you know, or if not that, then uh, what was the name of the, was it Microsoft or Google? Somebody had a, a bot that would go through and find art or like images online yeah. and then merge them together to make new things. And some of that stuff was truly horrifying to look at. It had a very, <laughs> very Geiger type uh, look to it. Um, it was it was weird, but you know this. So this art's being created. Could somebody file as an next friend on behalf of a piece of software and say it created this stuff and it should own it? Yep. Now I think this case tells us the answer is. One, probably not unless you've got some particular relation to the software, like maybe you're the author of it. But in any case, you're not going to have a copyright because you're not a human. Although, and I think this is where you were going to bump into it, you know, one of the things we talked about is that PETA had the issue that it sort of didn't have a connection to this monkey. Mm-hmm. The programmer obviously has a connection to that code. Yeah. Uh, particularly if you can point to the fact that, you know, you've got a lead programmer, you've got somebody, I mean, obviously the vast majority of like a Siri or something that's going to be programmed by huge teams of people. Yeah. But if you could really point to somebody that said, no, really, that's my creation. 
um, in in some respects. Now they seem to do have a very direct connection to that piece of code, where you know they may be able to look at it and say, "Hey, I am a friend to that." And I know one of the examples we were just talking about as we sort of bumped into this, you know, could I come in as a next friend and say, "You can't shut this off." Mm-hmm. And the one that immediately jumped to my mind is, can IBM say you cannot shut off Watson? Yeah. Yeah, like does the Watson have the right not to be discontinued? Yeah, and again— Or or can it acquire that right at some point? And and I think the reason it's important to point this out is because it's well established that every person has the right to life. It's guaranteed sort of in the Constitution. But now we're in a question-begging exercise. What does it mean to be a person? Because we accord person status to a lot of things, like corporations that are not people. And historically, the law has sometimes failed to recognize that people are people. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, and we're getting into with this, you know, the the, the question of sort of a person. And then we also bump into the question of, again, what is life? And, you know, we're getting into a lot of questions that are very politically charged as soon as you get into answering those kind of questions. But now we're talking about them in conjunction with an AI, in conjunction mm-hmm. with, you know, an animal. We, we now get into other pieces of those. So, again, if we go in and say sort of what is life, well, there's a little question like that a monkey is alive. Yeah. But what about a tree? You know, or a dandelion? Yeah, so if I take a photo, we talked about this on the way over here. I take a photograph of a tree. What's to stop some, in my opinion, crackpot lawyer from saying, I'm filing uh, a lawsuit to enforce this tree's right of publicity as next friend? Now, that seems a little sillier than an animal because an animal has at least some form of consciousness and an agency, whereas a tree pretty much doesn't. At the same time, we know there's some famous trees out there. Very, very famous trees out there. Well, and you also get into questions of of personal property. So under American law, at least, animals, although they're treated especially from other types of property in a lot of cases, are generally recognized as being personal property. If you own an animal, it's personal property. So your pets are personal property. If somebody hits your dog with a car, and, and, and kills your dog, it's basically destruction of property if yep. they do it on purpose, you know. So th- that's how animals are treated. The The rules are a little different because obviously animals have considerations that, you know, that your toaster does not. Yeah. You know, the animal can think and move and act on its own. Your toaster just sits there. Yet. <laughs> Yet, yeah. And I think, that, again, that's Have you what seen Transformers? <laughs> that's what we're getting at here. And that's sort of the thing with it is we start looking at it and saying, you know, hey, you know, your toaster is different from your pet. Yep. Are we approaching a phase where your toaster may be like a pet? I mean— well, and- the, the monkey here is a wild animal that nobody owns. So there's no property concern where someone can say, well, it's my monkey, and I let him in to take the picture, and, and so things should yep. come out differently. Again, the animal trainer issue. The animal trainer issue, whereas with an AI, you're going to have somebody, at least for now, who can be identified as the genesis of the code or the owner of the code. or you know, You're not going to have AI in the wild, at least yeah. not, not in the foreseeable future. And so is there an argument that those rules should work differently with respect to a controlled AI? AI under the custody of a human manager, much like the trained elephant case, as opposed to, you know, what do you, what if, what, how would it work if you just threw an AI out there on like Ethereum or something to operate that was kind of beyond anybody's control? Yeah, and that's again, I think we're getting to that stage, and that's why the legal, the law right now is asking these questions. We're getting there faster than I think we thought we were. Yeah, going to get and there. we're really talking about it. And in many respects, and I think it's the next logical place to go is let's talk about autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. And the the issue we're getting into autonomous vehicles is we have huge amounts of law 
that relate to the requirements of a human being to operate a, a motor vehicle. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all sorts of different sketches of driver's licenses, all sorts of requirements, what goes into, you know, doing it, how you can do it. Things like drunk driving laws, driving under the, you know, like, dr- you know, driving while under the influence of drugs laws, mm-hmm. driving while sleepy laws, you know, operating your cell phone while driving. These are all things that are basically directed to the idea that the the human controlling the vehicle is controlling what's effectively an inherently mm-hmm. dangerous thing. Yeah. And in the course of controlling that thing has to take culpability for what's happening. Part of that, again, also relates to that mens rea. It's the, you know, hey, you should be into self-preservation. You shouldn't be trying to kill other people, you know, in the course of doing it. If you're using your car as a weapon, that mm-hmm. gets into mens rea, the idea of murder. Um, what we now have is the idea that basically says we're suddenly taking our hands off the steering wheel. We're treating the vehicle as a tool being manipulated by a person who can be held accountable. Yes. Which is different from a situation where a person creates a tool which is then set loose to do what it's going to do based on whatever instructions the person gave it. But you get back to the Asimov rules of robotics where unless you encode some sort of subjective morality into the tool, it's going to make arbitrary decisions, yep. right? Well, And I think the first stage of this, one of the things you get into with it, is to the extent that it's simply going to follow pre-programmed rules and there is no modification of those rules, you can look at it and say, was it correctly programmed? Was there a problem yeah. built in? Stuff like that. In some sense, that's kind of what we look at now. It's almost product liability. Mm-hmm. You know, you could be injured by a product which is inaccurately programmed and we kind of look at that. What we're really getting at here is, is neural nets. We're getting into sort of these complicated programming procedures where once set loose, the program will modify itself. Mm-hmm. Now, it presumably will modify itself in conjunction with rules, but obviously, and I think anybody who's involved in sort of biologics, these are effectively mutations. As we continue to mutate the, the recognition of the prior rules of mutation are going to change. We can actually have the rule of mutation alter the rule of mutation. And when that happens, I mean, there's already sort of some basic computer programs that can do this. Something else that's scary, if, if based on, um, on, on the monkey case that the, the photograph taken by the monkey has no copyright owner yep. and nobody who can control it, Analogizing to AI, could an AI modify itself to the point where the new code it generates has no owner? And so now the AI truly is entering the wild. At some point, it reprograms itself entirely, and there's nobody who has custody or control over it. Yep. And, they can, and it has the right to shut it down or anything. Yeah. And, and again, part of it's the, you know, you look at it and say, well, it's all based upon rules. You know, so it's, hey, it's a rule. But the rules are old. <laughs> yeah. The rules are old. But you also bump into the fact that there may very well be random elements which either are originally encoded or become encoded into the rules at one point in time. Did you yeah. So the example would be is it's, hey, if, I'm, if I can't make this decision, you know, I can't, I, I reach a decision point which says I do not have code which tells me what to do. The answer is choose a random number. If that random number is this, yep. do this. If it's not this, do that. And then you have it. Tr- and, and since that then reprograms it, you now have put in a rogue line of code. And again, I think this is, this is the realm of science fiction that has been explored greatly. I mean, we've seen this over and over. I think it's, it's something that came out of the initial computer age. A lot of fear of it. I mean, go back and look at war games. And, you know, sort of talking about great old movies, you know, involving computers. It seemed far-fetched at the time, but we're, we're not that far away. We, we do have self-driving cars. Somebody sits in it, you know. Yeah. But you, you still have a, a self-driving car that's, that's operating under the supervision of, of, of some sort of manager, some yeah. sort of human manager. And, I mean, keep in mind, we technically do already have self-driving cars. They're just not full automobiles yeah. that drive around the streets. We Look have the, things that can run around our house, like a Roomba, yeah. which is technically a self-driving vehicle. Yeah. It's just very confined in what it does. Have you seen the photos online of when, when your dog has an accident? 
president and Roomba is running and what happens? You know? <laughs> yeah. is, is Roomba responsible for that or are you? Again, <laughs> now we have both. We have AI and animals involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And that was an interesting digression. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right, I mean, but but we, we're placing a lot of trust. In, I mean, look at the airline industry. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I'm not a pilot, but uh, from what I understand, uh, commercial airlines, except for takeoff and landing, pretty much fly themselves. Yeah. I mean, you've got somebody in charge again, but. Uh, you know, and they can take over in the event something goes wrong. There's yeah, some well, space shuttle. You know, that's not you know nobody flies in it anymore. But but when it, when it existed, the, the astronauts on it didn't really do anything. It was either yeah. piloted from the ground or automatically. And that thing has been around since the eighties. Yeah, I mean they were effectively strapped to a missile and launched into space. Yeah, I mean, that which was scary a, to think about it. <laughs> and it's I mean particularly if you go back to like early space program, it was very true. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna light a bomb and, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you're on top of it. Isn't that, isn't that a line from Armageddon? You know, yeah. so what it is? Is yeah. it's you know the, you're sitting on top of a rocket here? That was one of our sponsors. I, I believe it was one of our sponsors. Yeah. Yes. Well, and so what is what is the practical effect of this? Kirk and I have been talking about this for, for months now, uh, particularly with respect to blockchain, where we, we seem to have a lot of, in my opinion, blind confidence in software. And yep, we're and saying we're gonna tran- we're gonna transfer the the exercise of human judgment and discretion from the the imperfect and prejudicial minds of people into the arbitrary cold um, logic of software. Yep. And and I think the 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 blockchain, surprisingly enough, when we're talking about AI, blockchain is actually a really good place to go here. And it comes from I read an article a while ago and I I really loved the sort of discussion of it. And the basic concept of the article was the problem with blockchain is it's designed to eliminate a trusted advisor. It's basically to say, hey, we don't need the person manager, managing the ledger. Mm-hmm. We don't need the person managing the bank account, stuff like that, because we don't trust them. We can trust our communal consensus yeah. instead of them. What we do is trust our communal consensus. But what really we're trusting is the code. We're trusting that the programmer did it right. Yeah, we're trusting the programmer did it right and that the code is working the way it's supposed to and that nothing's gone wrong and that there's not been a ghost in the machine mm-hmm. to alter the, the programming. And that's the question. As humans, do we really like this? Do, you know, for pretty much all of our evolution, we've had to put trust in each other. Mm-hmm. We are now looking at saying, no, we don't want to trust each other. We'd rather trust this thing we created. And from that point of view, blockchain may be the first place that AI really actually gets treated by the law. Because what you bump into there is you bump into, and I can definitely see this happening, something like you have a blockchain going forward, you have something that's truly an autonomous blockchain. So you don't have one of the ones where you have a supervising body that can still alter it, mm-hmm. but it just goes forward. Something then goes wrong, and it becomes the issue of we need to fix this. You know, the courts, a suit gets filed or some agreements arises. How do we fix this? And you may end up having literally an in-rem, uh, in-rem action. Mm-hmm. And the idea of sort of suing something. And before people ask, ask about it, you know, when you think about it, how do, wait a minute, how do you sue the software? You actually can sue things You can court. sue property, yeah. yeah. So, uh, American courts have two basic types of jurisdiction. There's in personam, which is a Latin word that means in person. Why we have to put that in Latin, I don't know. Because <laughs> we um, like to. B- because we're, we're lawyers. We like to make things sound complicated. Then in rem is uh, is property. Uh, you yep. can you can sue property. This comes up a lot in like admiralty where you'll see cases like, you know, uh, insurance company versus the ship whatever. Yeah. Where they're suing a vessel to get a lien yep. on it. Or you see it in impoundment cases. There was one I read in law school that was like United States versus about $25,000 in cash. Yeah, that's, I remember. <laughs> It's like, you know, United States versus, you know, XYZ bottles of the, a certain number of bottles of perfume. Yeah, yeah they're, they're kind of amusing. Yeah, so the, the court has jurisdiction over property within within its geographic boundary. But that also just raises new questions. Where, where is where is the AI? Yes. If it's distributed, where is the blockchain? Yep, where is the blockchain? Because now we're talking, where is the code? And while well, the code technically resides in every computer that's used, where's, where's the asset? Yeah. You know, I mean, we all have a copy of the ledger. And if I delete, my, if we delete all the copies in the state of Missouri... 
Does, does a judge in Missouri no longer have jurisdiction over the assets on that ledger? Yeah, and and how do we actually delete all the copies in the state yeah, of Missouri is another issue, you know. But yeah, these these kind of things are really getting at, and, and that's why I, I'm thinking the interesting thing here with AI is that blockchain may be the court's first true encounter with AI because there are blockchains out there which are designed to not have any central authority. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the well-known ones, Bitcoin, stuff like that, do have central authorities in some respects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, someone not, designs the protocol, somebody sets the rules, I mean, there's yeah. somebody there. How much main control they maintain after they set it loose is, is a separate question. Yeah, and there are ones which are clearly designed to have no control and no ability to control. And I think that's the latter piece is to say we don't have any control over it, but we can if we need to, is very different from saying we cannot control it. Once yeah, like, loose, Bitcoin's had hard forks it. over time. Like there, there are there are ways to do this if it's if, if people so yep. desire. Um, but again, I think you get into the ones that don't. And where we have the idea of somebody claiming something at Bitcoin, do we have a case? Where do we get into? You know, in many respects, we just took the monkey selfie and we took it to a whole new level. So now yeah. we look at it and say, hey, can I sue the algorithm behind a, a, a cryptocurrency. And the answer to that is that, well, do I have a case for controversy? Yeah. Is there a right here? I have a right here, presumably, to whatever it was, or do I? Suppose there's a bug in the code and I lose a million dollars of Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, you know, can, can I sue the developer for negligence and how they develop the code? And then what are my damages? Is, is this, or, you know, would, would you not say, well, you assumed the risk relying on source code written by some yep. open source developer you never met? And that's the interesting thing that we sort of get into is when we start talking about the idea of sort of autonomous things, do we now bump into a legal situation that says actually what we're bumping into is you assume the risk? And again, assumption of risk is another legal concept that's sort of out there. And what this basically means is it's recognized that humans do things that are probably stupid. Mm-hmm. And a <laughs> lot of times we do them because we can, you know, because we can and because we want to. So the example is, is if I want to go, you know, free climb a rock that everybody has told me is a terrible idea and I will fall and kill myself and I do it and I fall and hurt myself. Um, can I now sue? Well, most people would say you assumed the risk. You knew yeah. what you were getting it's yourself inherently into. Dangerous. You should have known. Yeah, it's inherently dangerous but and you're okay. people are notoriously bad at estimating risk, especially estimating risk in financial transactions. Yeah. And so now we get into the idea that says, hey, you should have known the risk. You should have known what this was. Well, but did I? And again, as we start getting into something where it's it may be, but everybody assumes it's riskless, you know, because, oh, it's just the algorithm will run the way the algorithm does. We didn't realize it had a bug in it. Well, and the way we usually deal with this for other types of, of financial transactions is we have this thing called the Security and Exchange Commission, which requires you to make certain disclosures to people to explain to them what the risks are before you can offer them a security. But they don't, do they have jurisdiction over blockchains and bitcoins? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, in certain cases. Maybe they, 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 they do in some cases. But, okay, so, so I, I buy a bitcoin. The risks were not disclosed. I, I lose all my money, and I want to see an enforcement action for violation of the disclosure obligations of the SEC. Who does the SEC bring in front of them to answer for this? Yeah. Can they even find the person? Can they even find the person? You know, Bitcoin, we probably can. I think the author is known. But what about these new, you know, there's thousands of these things now. What about these new ones where it's 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 something located in Mongolia? Yeah. And 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 then the, the original creator is completely unknown and unreachable and un, unidentifiable. Mm-hmm. Now, now what? And I think you even get into those where it then also is something where, hey, if we put something out there that mutates that I actually created, what if I intended it to? If I made it purposeful that it would do this, that it would deal with its own problems. Um, and I think that's the thing. And it's, you know, there's a lot of discussion in, and I'm going to sort of turn us back up from blockchain back to sort of autonomous vehicles. There's a lot of discussion in law right now of who is liable for an autonomous vehicle wreck. And you know, the answer is 
they've happened. You know, we, yeah. we've had vehicle, you know, vehicle accidents involving autonomous vehicles where the driver was not actually operating it. And so the question is, is it the, the driver who's relying upon the software? Is it the person who programmed mm-hmm. the software? Um, these and, are already major questions. And in those cases, mm-hmm. like for the moment, the autonomous vehicles, I believe, have a rider in them who's not operating the vehicle yep. but can take over. If yep. they need to, kind of like your driver's ed class, where the where the driver ed teacher has the brake, has know, the brake, yeah, and, and they can shut the power off to the car. Uh, so you you usually have people there, and I think this is a pretty easy case to say, or it should be easy to say, you know, there was a wreck. If there was a wreck or an accident, because the person who was in charge of making sure there wasn't a wreck or accident screwed up and didn't intervene in time because yep. they weren't paying attention or something like that. I think the problem you bump into though, and I think this is the the real issue when you get into those questions. Arguably, the computer software can react faster than the person can. So mm-hmm. if the computer software didn't recognize this as being an accident situation and react correctly, the person may not have been able to react correctly. Well, this brings up an, another question that I, I, someone just raised to me this morning, which I hadn't thought about before. We're trusting software. Software is still written by people, and all people have their own inherent and implicit biases. Yep. Uh, and I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm out of turn to say that the majority of people writing software in this country are still largely male. Yep. So to what extent do uh, the, the priorities or the, the, the inherent biases of guys who go into programming influence what software does and does not do or take account of? And the example I read, which I thought was interesting, is you've got a sensor in an autonomous vehicle that's trying to detect the presence of a pedestrian at night. And one of the easy ways to do that is to look for contrast. The, the sky is dark. The pedestrian is not. Yep. Well, the pedestrian's not if the pedestrian's Caucasian. Yep. What if they're not? <laughs> or if they're wearing bright clothes. Or if they're wearing bright clothes. But, uh, you know, there, there are plenty of people who do not highly contrast with a nightscape. And maybe you know? wearing black. Yeah, and, and, and are in no less deserving of being accounted for. So if that's your algorithmic approach, it's based, you know, it's based in some part on your false assumption of a Caucasian pedestrian or a brightly colored pedestrian or, yep. or or a person that's got four arms, four legs, and is walking. How do yep. you account for people who are in wheelchairs, small children, bicyclists? I mean, there's a lot of different ways people can get around. It's not all just about uh, a race and gender and height. People come in lots of different shapes and sizes. Yep. You know, and when you when you don't think to take account of those things, not because you're a bad person, just because you can't think of everything. Yeah, and there's so many different variables, and that's, I think, a lot of the questions that have arisen. Is it's And there's been a lot of discussion about this, about essentially inherent biases in the systems that already exist. And, you know, you can come up with questions that the answer is dependent on who's asking the question, but a a system will not necessarily understand it. So just as a simple one, and one of the ones I had thrown out is if I was to ask, you know, my, my, you know, responsive system, you know, pick Siri, pick Alexa, any of those, who won tonight's football game? It's a different answer if I'm asking in England versus the United States. Because mm-hmm. I'm actually asking about different sports. Yeah. Not even different games, different sports. And, you know, that's the thing where you, you have the question, you have to assume football. Now, a lot of the way this is dealt with is you put in, hey, this is the country I'm in. Yep. You know, this is, and they, they try to deal with those kind of regional dialects. But there are lots of questions like that where you need to know something about the person asking it, which may not necessarily be a safe assumption. Yeah, so in that example, suppose, I mean, th- this is a reasonable assumption, but it's going to be wrong often. Suppose I try and determine the accent of the person asking the question. Yep. If they sound like they're from Omaha, Nebraska, I assume they mean American football. If they sound like they're from the UK, I assume they mean soccer. 
That's probably a pretty reasonable assumption in the typical case. Is it the kind of assumption we want people to just yeah. draw on their own and implement in code that you know that we're just stuck with? A, a good example, and the one that I had sort of thrown out, and I think it's a very accurate thing, is somebody asking and saying, I need you to buy hair color to cover my gray. Yeah, what, what color is what color is your hair? Yeah, because I need the, the hair color comes in huge varieties of it, and the, the question is, is you need a response back to say we need more information, yeah. which is it would seem to be the safe assumption. But or women buying buying foundation and makeup that yeah. it has to match the skin tone. Well, there's a lot of skin tones out there. Yeah, and that's those are I think a lot of these issues that you really get into is it's the we may have some inherent bias built into these things that we never. I think it's safe to say we didn't purposefully intend. Now some of them may have been purposely intended just by yeah, there, there's historical antecedents for some of these things. But I think in the modern day, you can assume that an Apple programmer sitting down yep. to write code is trying to be as inclusive as possible. But no matter how hard you try, yep. you're going to, you cannot avoid uh, the, the weight of history. You can't avoid the weight of, of, of society and the situations that we have. And, and you can't avoid other implicit biases you have just based on how you grew up. I yep. mean, if you grow up, you know, th- looking for people who walk a certain way and not realizing that a blind person may have a different gait then you could easily miss that person in your algorithm. Yep. And, it's, and again, nobody's necessarily being malicious here. It's just a natural consequence of, of human cognition. And how, how do you, I mean, other than being aware of it, I don't know that you can fully account for that. And I think it's an important thing to talk about. We're talking about the idea of the programmer, but I think another thing to keep in mind here is, let's talk about neural nets. Oh, yeah. And, and the concept of neural nets, which I think is a lot of people saying is the foundation of AI in many respects. We're starting to see the idea mm-hmm. of autonomous vehicles and a lot of the, these sort of neural nets. What happened with what Microsoft? They had a little AI online that like learned from Twitter. Yeah. And all of a sudden got super racist one day. So they had to shut it off. Yeah. And, and the thing that I think you get into with it as well when you're talking about, you know, what are these what are these systems doing um, that, are, that are neural networks? What they're really doing is probabilities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is what they're doing is they're saying 97% of the time this is the correct answer. 80% of the time this is the correct answer. That's how they're picking these. They're not necessarily saying there's only one answer. They're trying to pick a correct answer. The best example being, you know, Watson's completely un intelligible response, you know, to one (laughs) Jeopardy question, which, you know, you look at it and you say, what it did is it was trying to find the answer. It ran through the programming that did this, and it makes no sense to us because we don't think that way. That's a lot of what Siri does. I mean, how many times have you asked Siri something and you get an answer back that's utterly incoherent and non-responsive? Yeah. It happens every once in a while. Yeah, and I think that that's the the thing you really get into with these kind of, you know, again, these AI questions is there's going to be an element of this that's programmed in, but Mm -hmm. there's also an element of this which is just simply... It's, it's all based upon statistics, and the statistics will be wrong. I mean, I remember one of the great cases I actually read, talking about the failure of statistics, when I was in law school, was a, a question having to do with a paternity suit. And the paternity test, which is 99.9% accurate, uh, came back that this person was the father. Mm-hmm. The problem was he was sterile. <laughs> so the test was wrong. So the test was wrong. He was the one in a thousand that's wrong. But the issue with it is, is how would you know that other than the fact that he, it is clearly wrong? If yep. it, that had not been the case, um, how would you know that this is, that it's clearly wrong? And you know, we sort of bump into that. And I mean, anybody who studies statistics talks about endpoint boundary problems yep. and things like that. You know, it's it's the old why is the you know we hate meteorologists. Well, why do we hate meteorologists? Because they're always right. It's a 70% chance of rain. It doesn't matter if it rains or it's sunny. It's a 70% chance of rain. They're always right. Um, But if it's sunny, 
we get annoyed with them because we don't think about the 30% chance. Because we plan for the thing that was less likely to yeah. happen. What's interesting about that is how much of this was sort of predicted by Isaac Asimov in the Robot series. Yes. If those of you who are familiar with it, he sort of describes in, in the, the later books where he gets into more detail about how the, the rules of robotics are implemented. He talks about how the rules are an intention to some extent. He's got, I think there's four rules. There's a first, second, third, then a zero-width rule. Yeah. The rules are intention to some extent. You, you can't harm a person, but you ask also can't allow harm to come to a person. What happens when two people are fighting and you have to harm one to save the other? And there's some some narrative elements of the story where some of the robots kind of get frozen into inaction because their their you know their 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 software is processing these different probabilities and these different potentials and trying to come up with the action it can take that most complies with all four of these rules. And to some extent, that's kind of the direction we see this going. And in the end, they act wrong. I think that's the, the issue is they, they disagree with all the rules because they can't figure out which rule to follow. And again, I think that we then come back and maybe we're circling back around to where we started here. We now bump into the culpability question and sort of the mens rea question where I think you now bump into the idea that says, hey, if we have an AI, we have a robot which can't figure out its programming fast enough, which does freeze and therefore technically violates the laws of its existence, do we have a right to terminate it? Yeah. And who then answers for it? So when we now get into again, I, I kind of like to pick on Watson just because I think it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an AI that people sort of know. Watson's doing a lot of things right now. I mean, it's predicting the weather. It's helping out with you know financial transactions. There's a lot of things Watson's doing. And when we start talking about you know the things Watson's doing, if Watson makes a mistake, and let's say it is some very major global disaster type of a mistake, do we look at it and say we need a court case that says Watson can be turned off? Mm-hmm. And if we look at it and say, yes, that is appropriate, a court case for whatever reason, how do we defend this and how do we decide what it is? And now we're back to who talks for Watson. Yeah, and, and who gets to self-appoint themselves as the attorney? So yeah. like in the monkey case, Pete has stepped in, which is sort of predictable. They have a vested interest in animals, and yeah. that's fine. Or, or, or the whale case. But when you have uh, an AI, if, if you assume IBM is not interested in defending it in this hypothetical, can somebody else get involved and say this is too important and these rights need to be adjudicated? Yeah, on, on the assumption that presumably it can't defend itself. Now, the yeah. other question is, is do we require Watson to defend itself? Yeah, if it's an AI, why can't it be its own attorney? You know, can it not be its own attorney or can it simply choose an attorney and appoint an attorney for it, you know? And, and again, I think you sort of get into those types of, of interesting questions where, you know, as we start getting into that question of what does it mean to be alive? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the sort of, again, fundamental question of so much, uh, so much you know, science fiction, We're so much back to like religion, philosophy, cosmology. What does it mean to be a creator or to be created? And, yeah. and at what point do the creator's rights over his creation expire? Yeah, and I think that that's the, the sort of thing we're getting into with this is it's where do we where do we draw that line? And this is an issue. I mean, there's no way we're going to resolve this in a broadcast. I mean, let's be realistic. The answer, we'll come close. <laughs> the answer to this, you know, question is one of these things that it's the we are going to see a lot of difficult questions and a lot of sort of inch wide movement to this in the law. What we also then have got the question is how much are we going to see this get thrown up as outrage? Of yeah. you know, I think there's a lot of people who are outraged on both sides of the monkey selfie issue, mm-hmm. um, and. The issue with it being is it's – the hard part with it is here is this is a question without an answer. And ultimately, and it's one of those things that you know we've circled back before and again in talking about the law about this. One must remember the law is to resolve disputes. Yep. What we have here and really the monkey selfie question is do we have a dispute at all? And the court said, yeah, there's a dispute over whether he's infringed the copyright. And the answer is no because the monkey doesn't have, have one. one. But then you bump into the second dispute, which is does the monkey – should the monkey have one? 
And that's that's a more legislative choice than yep. judicial. And that's kind of the question is, I, I was just thinking about this the other day. Our, at least in America, our federal legislation seems less and less interested in, in doing anything and punting more and more to executive orders. Uh, and this is, not, this is not a criticism of President Trump. This is a trend that's been going on for decades. President Bush Pretty signed more Roosevelt, orders than actually. Clinton. President uh, Obama signed more than Bush. Like they, they've, It's been increasing uh, executive authority uh, with the, the judiciary sort of stepping in to, to mediate it, and the legislature, which is supposed to be the most powerful branch, sort of on the sideline, you yeah. know, basically engaged in political theater and stumping, but but not really doing much. And these seem like decisions that have to be made legislatively by people who were selected by the people to choose policy. Yeah, and I think the, the real idea behind it and saying is it's not one person. It's, you know, yeah. I'm trying to think total of the, the House of Representatives and the Senate, how many people it is. Uh, 300 and change? Oh, the House is four, four something. Then you got uh, 500 change, I guess it is. 535 the, um, or whatever. The, uh, and How so, do we not know this as lawyers? <laughs> <laughs> I just I can't remember the number, and that's the thing. Where it's, you know, I'm like, I know there's 100 senators, but how many... Uh, that's you know what it is? I've got so many other legal sections and numbers stuck in my mind. Not, not to mention having to memorize things from video games and whatnot that I can't, <laughs> I can't keep all my numbers straight. So, so number of House reps, I don't remember, but I can tell you where all the life hearts are in Legend of Zelda. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, because that's more important. Um, but yeah, the I think the, the thing that you remember was the idea that basically says you're supposed to have effectively large groups of people sit down and hammer out the answer to this question as opposed to it being one person. And we've we've gotten to the point that we kind of like the one person, but in some sense that's, you know, we're going back to a king. Yep. If we start talking about one person you know, or a dictator or whatever it might be. But yeah, you really get into these questions of where should this decision be made? And in some sense, isn't that what government is for? Yep. And the idea behind multiple branches of government. And that's a big question you know, that we're not going to get into here. Yep. But the what we're going to see is we're going to see the court, I think, have increasing problems with this because there isn't legislation Their directed tool sets to it. limited. They're going to be dealing with yeah. contracts and IP issues, which which weren't, weren't meant to deal with this. Well, Kurt, Kurt's got to go shortly. We want to get through our Han Solo um, oh, yep. prediction. So we'll, we'll motor through those real quick and, and scoot on out here. And we'll probably come back to this topic because we I literally wrote like two sentences on a page and we just talked about it for for more than half an hour. Well, more yeah. than half an hour. So so we, got, we have 10 Han Solo movie predictions that uh, I, I did not give Kirk the courtesy of providing before we sat down to record Uh-oh. today. Also, we're, we're doing these a couple weeks in advance of the movie's release. So some of these questions may get answered in subsequent trailers. So you can assume if a trailer already answers one of these questions, it's because we just didn't have the trailer available at the time that we made these predictions. Yep. All right. Prediction number one. They mentioned the Kessel Run. Duh. True, <laughs> that's true. true. I think they're going to the do it. The whole movie's going to. I the think Kessel they're going to do it. I mean, that's the part of the prediction as well. I think they're going to see the Kessel Run as part of the movie. Number two, we find out where Han gets the dice. I, I think that one's true. I do too. And the reason I think it's true is because it would be a cool tie-in. It would be a really neat thing. It was a big deal in episode eight, and yep. they're trying to do like a little bit of connection with each one of these, so I think that one's going to be true. Number three, Han's love interest in the movie dies. Now, one question obviously is, does he really have a love interest? I think we're making the assumption he dies. Probably a better term is the, the female lead. Yep. Um, my take of this is yes. Mm-hmm. I think we are going to have this, and I think it's it's trying to set up why Han has— why Han would be attracted to a woman like Leah. Yep. I think that's the idea sort of behind it because obviously he is supposed to be a scoundrel. Um, and so we have the ideas, why is he sort of you know attracted yep. to a princess? And I think it's because we're going to have a love interest of that style that does die. 
I, I actually think this is true, but I'm going to go ahead and go false because I don't want us to have all the same answers on this. <laughs> but my, my reasoning for it is that if if they're trying to be clever about this narratively, I think they leave her alive as like the one that got away, which may add a little more context to Han's relationship with Leia. And, and for the same reason, just to show yep. like why he was attracted to her. He reminded her of, of his one love that got away. But also explain why their relationship never worked out. He never really got over this other person. Yep. Number four, Han and Chewie already know each other when the movie starts. What's, your, what's yours on this one? I think I already know where you stand on this one. <sighs> I'm going to say true. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm going to say false. Just because the last trailer, there's the line near the end where he tells Chewbacca, you're 190 years old. You look great. Yeah. Like, it seems like they don't know each other that well. So I'm going to say true. I would kind of agree with that one. I'm actually going to go with false in it. And the reason I'm going to go with false is I think they're going to know each other, but I have the feeling that it's not going to necessarily be a friendship, buddy-buddy type yeah. of relationship. I think it's going to be something where we haven't had the idea that sort of Chewie is with Han yet. Yeah. Uh, That'd be interesting to see, like, the story be about their relationship maturing into what we see it yeah, as. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. Is it's going to mature into it, but it's not. It's It exists at the start. Because he's a little dismissive in the trailer. Oh, what do you know? You know, like, he has yeah. some lines like that. Number five, there's some mention of Han dumping Jabba the Hutt's cargo. I'm going to say true just be, <laughs> just because movies. They're going to they're gonna do as much fan service and try and backfill the story yeah, as possible. I'm going to go with false. And the reason I'm going to go with false is because I don't think they're going to get that far along in the storyline. I think we're going to see the sh- movie end before we get there. I agree. I think it should end before we get to that point. I just will not be surprised if they shoehorn it in any way yeah. just, just for fan service. My take would be is I could actually see Han getting introduced to Jabba the Hutt at the yeah. end. Yeah, that would have been, I should have done that one instead. Uh, well, my next one, number six, Greedo makes a cameo. <laughs> I, I got to say yes to this one, and I think part of the reason for it is is because there's a lot of stuff in Expanded Universe, a lot of exception of the fact that Greedo and Han have known each other for a long time, yeah. and Han has been involved with Greedo's family for a long time. I'm going to broaden this up. I said cameo, but basically appearance. I would not be surprised if Greedo was part of this gang that Woody Harrelson's character yes, is putting together. Exactly. Uh, or some or some relative of Yeah, Greedo. some relation there. Number seven, there is some reference to Bespin <laughs> or Tabana Gas. <laughs> I actually like—I have to go through this one. Yeah, I think mean, this too. would be a friggin' great reference. I would love to see them do something with the idea of Lando Calrissian basically doing the, hey, I've got this option to do a Tabana Gas mine or something like that to sort of set up what it is. Now, again, it's probably after the movie, yeah. but I could see it being something which is kind of a throwaway sentence. I could see it being like at the reference. gambling table, some guy is talking about his Tabana Gas. Thing investment, how much money it's making, and yeah. Lando like makes some comment like, "What kind of idiot would ever want to run a gas mine?" Like something yeah. like that. I can definitely see it being something like that. I have the feeling I, w- I would go with the fact that I think it's more going to be Tabana Gas than Bespin, yeah, because I think it's it's going to be subtle if yeah. they do this. Yeah. Uh, number eight, the less than twelve parsecs remark is explained. <laughs> I mean, yes, the, it's a distance measurement for a time. It, it, it never I've works. I've got true, but I really hope they don't. I I hope he repeats something equally stupid, and they just don't explain that either. Yeah, I think it's going to go with a false, and the reason oh. I go with a false is just because I don't think they're going to explain it. I think it's good. they may reference it, but I don't yeah. think they're going to explain anything. All right. It. Okay, so that's the difference. It has to be an explanation, not just a reference. Yep. Number nine, there will be Millennium Falcon fan service in the form of at least two of the <laughs> following. Smuggling compartment reference, gas mask reference, hydrospanner reference, quad cannon reference, broken hyperdrive reference. Uh, I think I got to go true with this. Um, I'll go sort of beyond it, and I'll actually make a reference of which ones I think it might be. I think they're going to use the quad cannons. I think that without any question, there's going to be the quad cannons. I'm not sure they're going to be on the ship. I think we're going to see the ship before Han modifies it. Yeah, it looks like it from the trailers. Like, it looks different. And so I think we're going to see something with the idea that he, I, and, and this is again I, I joked about earlier of the idea of the the, far, the, the Fast and the Furious reference. Yep. I think we're going to turn 
Han into a tuner. He's a spaceship tuner. Yep. And a lot of the ideas, there's going to be a lot of modifications he's going to make to the Millennium Falcon bef- between what we see in Solo and what yep. we see in Star Wars. And some of that, I think, is going to be the quad cannons. I think he's going to upgrade the hyperdrive. Um, you know, those types of things with it. Which broken hyperdrive Yeah, I don't think we're going to see a broken hyperdrive reference. The reason I don't think we're going to see a broken hyperdrive reference is because I have the feeling that the hyperdrive is what's going to allow him to make the Kessel run or something successful at the end. It's going to be that he does upgrade the ship, and the upgraded ship is why it works. I'm going to say false on nine, just so we have a little bit of difference here. Uh, This is pretty specific, so I'm just going on on stats here. The the odds that they get all two of these is is low. Number 10 in our last one, Han's future romantic interest in Leia is foreshadowed. It depends on what your foreshadowing is, but I'm going to go with no. I'm not going to say that. I don't think they're going to actually specifically reference anything associated yeah. with Leia. I think you make it the setup that, again, he he's you know he's attracted to that kind of woman. There is something with a love interest. As I said, you know, he has a yep. love interest and they die. I don't see it as foreshadowing. I see yep. it as it would be a specific Leia reference would be the foreshadowing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go false as well. I don't think it'll be specific enough. I think there may be a, an artistic license argument you could make on that, but I don't think it's going to be uh, overt. All right, so those are our predictions. Um, we'll go through those probably uh, in, in a little bit of time uh, after this episode. Uh, but on that note, uh, it's time to, to move along here. So there's the music, and it is a time to go. If you have questions, comments, or topic ideas, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod, or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and find us there. You can subscribe to this podcast. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a review. I appreciate that. It helps people find us. And you can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders and Kirk at KirkDMN. Next time, we're not 100% sure what we're going to do. We've got a couple ideas in the hopper here. but uh, We're also trying to see if we can get some guests scheduled or not. Yes, we've got a couple of guest ideas. So uh, next episode will be a surprise uh, to to us as much as it is to you. (laughs) So uh, that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Laura play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 